Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. And so what I wanted to do this morning, in place of what we had prepared, was to invite you to turn me to James chapter 4. Now last Sunday we looked at, um, we looked at the theme of God's you know, providence and understanding that we cannot understand the future. And I wanted to dovetail off of that to James chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 13 to 17 this morning. Because James deals with this in a very similar way. Of course, James is a book that is um, very much wisdom literature. It's really the one of the wisdom books of the New Testament. You know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and some of these wisdom books in the Old Testament we know. But James is a book of wisdom in the New Testament. And, uh, and he has some incredible uh, insight here that he brings out in verses 13 to 17. And that's what I want us to look at. And consider this morning, just to it kind of advance this theme of God's providence and planning. Planning and providence is really the, the title of our sermon this morning. And if you've ever been in, a, in an interview of some kind, you've probably been asked the question, what is your five-year plan, right? It, that's kind of a, a go-to um, interview question. If you're a young person, the question that's always asked of you is, uh, as you're getting to the end of high school and and starting to wrap up your, your formal school year. So where are you going to school? That's the question that everyone wants to ask, you know, graduating seniors. If you're newly married, the question everybody wants to ask is, uh, when are you going to start your family, right? When, when are you going to start having children? And as you get older, the questions seem to always swirl around things like, when are you going to retire? And um, what, what are you going to do someday when you stop working? Um, I'm waiting for someone to ask me that question. <laughs> As a pastor in a, in a small developing church like ours, I'm often asked, uh, when will the church own its own building? When will the church have 100 members? When will the church have 250 members? Um, when will we split and, and, and launch a new church? And, you know, these are the kinds of questions that we face again and again as we walk through life, you know, in different stages of, of, our, um, of our walk. And there's a natural curiosity in each of our hearts, I think, that, come, that comes with uh, wanting to know the future, and we, we talked a little bit about that last Sunday. And we want to know the future because um, it fabricates a measure of certainty in our hearts, uh, and it is in, in, you know, when we think about the future, it's obviously uncertain from many, in many different ways. And as a culture, uh, again, just reiterating the themes from last Sunday, we've placed a huge premium on uh, planning the future, dreaming you know, thinking about what the future holds and, and what that means for us personally. And I think about uh, financial advertisements um, for, you know, brokers and things like that. They always show these happy retired couples traveling the world. They always show them ticking off items of their bucket list and, uh, you know, not, not a cloud in the sky. And the message is always the same. If you invest with our company, if you put your resources with us, we can make all your financial plans and really all your plans for the future a reality. That's, that's kind of the unwritten message there. And then, of course, you think about publishing, how many thousands of books have been written over the years that confidently claim to have discovered, you know, the six steps to advancing your career or, you know, the three principles for growing your company or, for, or, you know, in the church context, so the four keys to doubling your attendance and church growth or something along those lines. Uh, it, it is big business, and oftentimes as believers, we just, we kind of eat that up. We, we like that. It's very formulaic. Um, 
Why, why do we eat that up? Well, because there's this inherent belief that we can be masters of our own destiny, that we can control the future if we just have enough information, that we, have, you know, we can have sovereign control over what is to come. And the question I want to ask this morning is, why are we so vulnerable to this, particularly as believers? Why are we so quick to accept what the world believes about this or that or anything else for that matter? And I think to begin to answer that question uh, is we are so easily led astray by the world's thinking on this because far too many of us are immersed in the world all the time. And we essentially kind of drink in its values, its priorities, and its entertainments. And, and so that is what occupies our hearts and minds. We mentioned this in Equipping Hour, Colossians 3 and verse 1, Paul reminds us to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. But if we're honest, many of us struggle at times by setting our minds on things not above, but things below. We struggle to set our minds on heavenly virtues, heavenly priorities, heavenly enterprises, and we're much more comfortable setting our minds on things that are uh, that we can see and, and things that are, are temporal. And we don't, I think, realize just how much of an impact that has, how much of an effect, it, if it, uh, how, how it shapes our thinking, our values, and how much it influences our, our, our intuition. We, in a sense, go nose-blind to the stench of worldliness and materialism and even a sense of self-determinism that is not only around us, but, but it actually can become, kind of get into our clothing, if you will. It can get in us. And because our tendency is to go nose blind to worldly wisdom, we need to constantly throw open the windows of God's word to bring in fresh air. We need to bring in the fresh air of God's word. I know, like, um, when I'm in the, ho- in the house for long periods of time, and then I go out and check the mail or something, and maybe bring the trash can in and then come back into the house, I smell like, wow, the house house smells weird. I didn't even realize it smells this weird. You know, maybe I need to open a window and get some fresh air in here, especially in the wintertime when things are all closed up. And it's the same with God's Word. We need to, we need to realize how stale and lifeless some of those things are that we immerse ourselves in, and we need to throw open the windows of God's Word and let, let that wash over and 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 renew our hearts and minds. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above. How we think about our plans, how we think about our possessions, even how we think about our spiritual maturity needs to be refreshed by the divine truth, the clarified air of divine truth. And uh, this morning, we're going to try and do that by looking at James's exhortation in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James says this, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. As we come now to this text, then, uh, the author, of course, is James, who is the half-brother of our Lord, and at this time he's the leader in the Jerusalem church. 
And uh, James is addressing, as he does throughout this letter, this short letter, a kind of topic, topic, topic. And they all center around the theme of heavenly wisdom in contrast to earthly wisdom. Chapter 3, verses uh, 15 to 18 are kind of the, the heart of the, of the letter as a whole. And he's addressing a new theme here in verse 13. And we know that because he uses this formula again and again where he has a, an imperative uh, and, a, and then he pairs that with a direct address like brethren or so-and-so. And so he does that here in verse 13. He says, come now, that's an imperative. And he's, he's addressing you who say this or that thing. And, um, and so as we look at this section all the way down to chapter 5, verse 6, he's addressing a theme. And the theme is this, don't pridefully ignore God and heavenly wisdom as it relates to his providence or your possessions. The theme is don't pridefully ignore God and heavenly wisdom as it relates to his providence or your possessions. And by providence, I mean God's directing all things, seen and unseen, good and evil, according to his sovereign purposes. So Paul defines providence in Ephesians 1 and verse 11 as God working all things after the counsel of his will. That's what we mean by providence. But I, I really think that's, that's a very theological explanation. But I love, I think J. Vernon McGee has a great word picture to describe providence. He says, providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of all human events. And I think that's a fitting picture of how God is directing his, uh, John Piper has in his big, massive uh, book on this, he calls it God's purposeful sovereignty. And so he's addressing that issue here in verses uh, 13 to 17. He's also addressing how we think about possessions. And by possessions, we just mean our earthly belongings, those things that will burn up at the end of the age. James is concerned that his readers, whom he assumes are believers, as he's writing here, that they have gone nose blind to the worldliness of the culture that surrounds them in relationship to these things. And in their arrogance and in their pride, they are um, growing callous to just how much of the world's thinking, how much of the world's values are, are affecting and influencing their own, their own hearts and lives. And so this section at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is trying to arrest the reader's attention. James does this from time to time. He, he says in verse 13, he says, come now, you who say, and, and then in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, come now, you who are rich. The sense of the phrase is, you, listen up. You, you who would say these things and do these things. So, so he's not really speaking in gentle shepherd mode. He's speaking more in kind of forceful prophet mode as we come to these, these verses because he has something serious to say, and he wants us to do that. He has basically set aside his shepherd's staff, and he's put on his prophet's mantle. And um, in particular, in these final verses of chapter 4, which is what we're going to look at this morning, he confronts a worldly mindset that fails to consider God's providence and his power as we think about tomorrow, whatever tomorrow may bring. He warns us in this chapter, in this section, that heavenly wisdom necessitates that we take God into account when we make all our plans for the future. And that is the theme of this text, that, we are, that heavenly wisdom necessitates that we take God into account when making all our plans for the, for the future. The worldly 
the materialistic, the self-worshipping world we live in treats this world as if it's a closed system in which nothing outside of our efforts, nothing outside of our control is um, what determines the success or the failure of our plans. But as we're going to see as we work through these verses, is nothing could be further from the truth. And of course, we know that even from last Sunday as well. It is only those who are humble and submit to God's will in everything, only they can expect his grace to accompany them as they make and carry out their plans. And so we're going to break the text down into four, four parts, and um, we're going to see the, the, the uh, presumption of profit in verse 13. We're going to see the, the providence of God, excuse me, the problem of pride, and then we'll see the providence of God, and lastly, the proverb of wisdom in verse 17. So that's kind of the roadmap for where we're going. But I want to begin where James begins in chapter 4 and verse 13, and that is with the presumption, we'll call this section the presumption of profit. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. As we said earlier, James is addressing his audience in kind of profit mode. He's not being very gentle. He's not being very um, nuanced. He's kind of getting right to it here. And he is not addressing one particular person in this text or one particular situation. He's just speaking in generalities. He is speaking to a kind of people in his day who would speak this way, the kind of people in in his day who would act in this way. And, um, and, of course, there are many people like that. And the situation he describes is very common to that, state, that, that part, uh, that age, that first century Greco-Roman world, the mercantile society. Many Jews left the land of Palestine at this time because he's, he's in Jerusalem. Many Jews had left the land of Palestine in the first century to pursue business opportunities. In fact, um, in, at this stage in the first century, Um, it's pretty well attested that there were more Jews living outside of Palestine than actually in Palestine in in the first century. Uh, And they mostly left because there were more economic opportunities elsewhere, which is a reasonable and a rational thing to do. But but most of them were not living, many Jews were not living in the land of Israel itself. So in this opening verse, we, we meet this businessman who has laid out a very strategic plan for the future. Notice the things that this uh, hypothetical individual has decided. He's decided uh, where he's going to go. He's going to go to this or that city. He has determined and decided how long he's going to go there um, for a year. He's determined that this is what he's going to do. He's going to engage in a particular line of business. And he's also decided what the result will be. He's going to earn a profit. This is... um, a well-to-do individual, most likely. This is someone who has capital. This is somebody who has a well-thought-out business plan. This is the kind of person today would maybe be on the cover of a Forbes magazine, that somebody who would be above the fold in a, in a feature article in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. This is the kind of person that venture capitalists would be knocking down their door to get in on the ground level. But notice the utter presumption in what they say. They presume where they're going to be able to go. There's a presumption of how long they're going to be able to stay there. There's a presumption of what kind of business they're going to engage in. And there's a presumption of what the outcome of their efforts will be. You say, well, what's wrong with having a plan, right? I mean, what, I mean, what person would launch into business with no plan? 
That would be foolish. That would be utter, utterly ridiculous. And of course, James is not inferring by writing this the way he does that planning is bad or evil. In fact, Scripture commends planning and Scripture, scripture commends seeking wise counsel from others. Um, Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, profit. Everyone who is hasty, on the other hand, comes surely to poverty. And you could, you could look at a number of other Proverbs, but, but there's never any commendation for hastiness. There's never any commendation for uh, winging it in the, in the wisdom literature. Proverbs consistently commends those who plan, those who prepare, those who seek counsel, those who are diligent in their work. So planning is not the issue here. The problem, and this is what James is exposing, is presumptuous planning. These individuals are working off the assumption, the presumption, that they can accomplish whatever it is that they intend to do. They don't expect any obstacles to stand in their way or stop them. They have the time, the place, the business plan, and the profit. It's all cast in concrete in their mind. And notice, not once do they stop to consider what God thinks about their plans. James says this kind of presumption that fails to take God into account is both sinful and it is foolish. This kind of presumptuous self-confidence is very much alive in the world we live in today. You see it in the business world. Entrepreneurs and CEOs of companies <clears throat> will boast about their plans. We're going to expand here, and we're going we're to launch this next year, and we're going to do this. And, right? uh, how, ask yourself this question. How many business people forecasted COVID in 2019? Right? Um, so you see that kind of presumption all the time. You see it in the athletic world. College professional athletes presume they're going to be MVP and they're just going to, next year they're going to win the championship. They're going to score the most points or whatever. <clears throat> you see it in the church though as well. Entire church growth movements and church consulting movements operate off this assumption that the church planner or the church planning team, if they just do the right things, follow the right steps, get the right location, have the highest production value uh, services, meet the felt needs of the people. They can grow their church from, you know, 50 to 100 to 500 to 1,000, and, and on and on it goes. And uh, many times, and uh, many times pastors and ministry leaders talk about their, their vision for the expansive building projects that they anticipate or some massive ministry endeavor that they're going to take hold of and run with. And they do that... Um, with a carefully thought out plan, but there's a presumption that they can accomplish whatever it is that they're planning to do. They just need to get to it. But this is wrong, and, and there's a reason why it's wrong. And James is going to confront that kind of presumptuous planning. And that leads us into the second point in our outline this morning, the problem of pride. So we've seen the presumption of profit. Secondly, the problem of pride. We see this in verse 14 and again in verse 16. James points out that presumptuous planning is in contrast to heavenly wisdom. He says, um, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Verse 16 says, but as it is, your boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. See, the issue that he's addressing is presumptuous planning. And that, he says, is born out of a heart that is prideful, that is arrogant. 
He says, well, you know, you, you say so definitively that you're going to go here or there, you're going to do this or that, and it's such and such is going to be the result, but you don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You literally have no clue. How can you forecast as a, as a CEO your sales numbers and profit margins three years into the future? How can you do that with any kind of confidence when you don't even know if your company will exist? How can you say you're going to go to this school and graduate with this degree and pursue this career when you don't even know if you're going to wake up in the morning? How can you say and claim that you're going to plant as a pastor three churches in 10 years you know, when you can't even be confident that you're going to be alive to preach in the pulpit next Sunday? James is just echoing the words of Proverbs 27 and verse 11. Do not boast about tomorrow, Solomon says, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I mean, this is the reality. Notice how he is reinforces, how he reinforces the transitory and fleeting nature of our lives. Look at the last part of verse 14. He says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The imagery here is powerful. It, it very much mirrors Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes. Life is breath. It's, 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 it's just a puff of air. Next time you, you sit around a campfire, the next time you extinguish a candle and you watch the smoke rise up off of that wick, it just sort of rises up and disappears. It's gone. I want you to see that next time you see that, and I want you to think about what James says here. That is what our life is like. It is like that puff of smoke. And, and Job reinforced this, you know, you know, one of the earliest patriarchs. He says in Job 7, he says, remember, my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. I waste away. I will not live forever. He says, and of course, in his suffering, he says, leave me alone for my days are but a breath. And of course, I, I think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 39 and uh, verses 5 and 6. Behold, David says, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will, gather, who will gather them. I mean, this is what we looked at last Sunday. Solomon said, you don't know whether it'll be love or hatred. You have no idea what tomorrow may bring. And James says to think of your life as anything more than a breath is boastful presumption. But as it is, he says, all your boasting is all, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Back in chapter 1, verse nine, uh, verses 9 and 10, James pointed out that boasting in and of itself is not wrong. It's what we're boasting in. It's the object of your boasting that's the issue because um, we're called to boast in the Lord. And so that, that's a good kind of boasting. But the boasting he's speaking about here is, is a is a negative, negative boasting. You know, some boast in chariots and some in horses. That's the wrong kind of boasting, Psalm 20, verse 7 says. But he says, we will boast in the Lord our God. So that's the right kind of boasting. So there's a right and a wrong way to glory in something outside of ourselves, and there's a wrong 
way to do that, and that's what he's addressing here. There's a right and a wrong way. And James makes clear that, that this boasting in presumptuous planning is arrogant. The word implies an excessive confidence in one's own cleverness, an excessive uh, trust in one's own skill. This is the kind of arrogant self-sufficiency, self-confidence that the Apostle John describes as being characteristic of the world. In John, 1 John 2, verse 16, talks about the boastful pride of life. That's, that's the idea here. And what is the root cause of presumption that fails to take God into account when we make our plans? Well, he tells us it's pride. The problem is a proud heart that forgets our ignorance. He says, you don't know what'll be tomorrow. You don't know what your life will be one way or another. The problem is, is a proud heart that forgets our frailty. You're just a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. There's no, there's no substance. And it's not a small matter either. He says it's, it's not just foolish. He says it's sinful. All such boasting, verse 16, is, he actually calls it evil. Prideful presumption fails to acknowledge God, his sovereign will, and his power over everything in our lives. In a way, it contends for supremacy with God, which, as we know, is a recipe for God to come and chasten us. We don't want to, we want to get into, uh, into an a arm wrestling battle with God. So how should we think about the future as Christians? Should we just throw caution to the wind then? Uh, should we wake up each day without a plan, just kind of wander from thing to thing, no direction, no purpose? Because, I mean, we can't know the future, and we can't even presume to know anything about the future. Is that what James is asking us to do here? Of course, that's, that's not it at all. He's implying, what he's implying in pointing out the, the sin of presumptuous planning is that there's a kind of planning that can that we can do. And in verse 15, we see the counterpoint to the point that he has made about boastful presumption. And that we'll call that the, um, the providence of God. So we've seen the presumption of profit, the problem of pride. Thirdly, in verse 15, we see the providence of God. How do you avoid the sin of boastful presumption and yet still be wise to plan for the future? How do you not fall into that trap? And the answer is, we acknowledge God in all of our plans. You acknowledge God in all of your plans. Look at verse 15. He says, instead, instead of all that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. In the original language, this is known as a third-class conditional statement. The construction underscores the uncertainty of the underlying condition. If the Lord wills, then this or that. He may do it, he may not. He's not entirely sure. There's really no way to be 100% confident one way or another. This, though, stands in stark contrast to the arrogant certainty of the presumptuous businessman who's bragging about how he's going to go here and do this and earn this much profit and accomplish these things. James says, instead of being pridefully presumptuous about the future, humbly acknowledge that God is the sovereign of the universe and not you and not me. And you see Paul doing this in his 
life and his ministry, and we see that recorded in Scripture over and over again, you don't see him arrogantly saying, I'm off to convert Ephesus, right? What does he say? Acts 18, verse 21. But taking leave of them, Luke writes, Paul said, I will return to you again if God wills. And it says he set sail from Ephesus. Or as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I will come to you in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Or he says to the Philippians, as he encourages them, he says, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Even more significant than Paul, of course, and he see him doing this constantly in his writing, in his letters, Jesus taught us to pray for and submit to the Lord's will to be done, right? Isn't that the disciples' prayer? Like, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's an acknowledgement that God is the sovereign of the universe. And not only does our Lord teach us to pray in that way, but he models that attitude of submission in his human nature in great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. So we must acknowledge that God is the sovereign of the universe. He is working all things from the smallest of details to the greatest of purposes, which, of course, would be redemption. All of that is unfolding according to his will and according to his, his purposes. And so as we make our plans, heavenly wisdom necessitates an understanding that while we make our plans, and we should make plans, God has every right to change those plans. Proverbs 16, verse 9, we know it well. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or later on in verse 33 of the same chapter, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And it's not that we need to repeat this phrase, if the Lord wills, like some kind of magical incantation every time we speak about the future. Right? It would be, it would be a, a bit much if every time... We put the kids to bed at night. We, we said to them, you know, see you in the morning, if the Lord wills. <laughs> you know? There has to be an acknowledgement that both, you know, yes, that's true, <laughs> but it's a bit much. There has to be an acknowledgement that both our lives are a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, but, you know, we, we're expecting to get up in the morning and have a normal day, as far as we can tell. And God, in his providential purposes, could certainly choose to call one or both of us home in the morning, but um, that's not our plan, and so we can, we can say that. But we understand that reality. We understand that reality. And God would not be less righteous for, for, for doing that if he changed our plans. So that leads us into our fourth point in verse 17. Seeing the presumption of profit, the problem of pride, the providence of God, and lastly, in verse 17, the proverb of wisdom. The proverb of wisdom. James essentially seals this message in this section with a truism in verse 17. He says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This isn't just some disconnected proverb that's floating around in the Christian community about sins of omission. 
It does speak to the reality of, that we can sin by not doing what we ought to do. But that's not the purpose, that's not its purpose in its context. So it's right to understand it that way, but it's not really, you know, we can't just pluck it out of there by itself. Just see it in its context. James is pointing out that continuing to conduct your life in boastful presumption, in disregard for God's will and his ways, when you know better, is a serious transgression. My mind always runs back to the warning of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you just flip back a couple of pages probably in your Bible, in chapter 10, we see in verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, it's one thing to go to sin by giving into a moment of temptation. It's one thing to sin by forgetting what God's word says as we let our guard down. It's one thing to sin because we understand the flesh and our old habits die hard. It's a completely different thing to say God's word says it's sin, but I don't care. And that is what James is warning against here. Presumptuous sin reveals a heart that's never truly tasted of the gospel, a heart that has not experienced likely the saving grace of God. Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, concurs with the law of God in the inner man. Heavenly wisdom wants to do what is right, even though there's so many opportunities where we fall short, where the members of our flesh are waging war with the members of our spirit. Heavenly wisdom will take God into account when making plans for the future. And so we say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. We understand that. Even if we don't say it, we don't have to say it out loud, but there has to be an acknowledgement of it in our hearts. Heavenly wisdom takes God at his word. And even though we fall desperately short, we understand it is true and we, and we embrace it. And so we must embrace we must pursue planning with an eye toward God in all of our plans. To kind of bring it all together, let's look, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In Luke's account, our Lord is teaching and preaching. And we're looking at verse 13. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. And he says, uh, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell, me my brother, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And then Jesus, I'm filling in the pronouns here, and then Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? 
And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Saul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As Jesus was teaching and preaching, this guy in the crowd yells out and asks Jesus to basically be the arbiter, the go-between in dispute between him and his brother over their inheritance. And Jesus has no interest in that at all. In fact, he immediately calls the man out for being worldly right there on the spot. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Man, I, wish, I bet you he wished he didn't open his mouth at that point. And then he tells this parable to illustrate why it is foolish to forget God in, as the ultimate sovereign over every detail of our lives. He says, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for even when one has an abundance, does his, does his life consist of his possessions. Notice the hypothetical story mirrors our text in James. You see the presumption of profit, right? This man assumed all that he was going to do would just continue as it always had in the past. I have all this stuff. There, he says, I will store all my grain and goods. I have many goods laid up for many years to come. Verse 19. So you see the presumption of profit. You see the problem of pride. You see the arrogance in his heart. All, in all his consultations and plans, not once does he stop to ask God or pray and ask God what he should do. It says in verse 17, he reasoned with himself. Later on, he says, I will say to my soul. This is a man having a dialogue, not with the Lord, but with himself. You'll notice the providence of God in verse 20. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? The days of his life, according to God's sovereign purposes, were about to close. And because God's purposes always come to pass, the man died that very night. The bottom dropped out of all his plans immediately. And then lastly, you see the proverb of wisdom in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man should have known better. He knew the right thing to do, this man in the parable, but chose not to do it, and he paid the penalty before God. And so it, it very much is in play. James is very much drawing, what he writes in his text, is very much drawing off of our Lord's teaching here in Luke. Heavenly wisdom necessitates that we acknowledge God in all of our plans for the future. All of them. So what's your five-year plan? If the Lord wills, this or that. Where are you going to go to school when you graduate? Well, if the Lord wills, I hope to go to this school or that school. When will you start your family? Well, if the Lord wills, maybe next year, maybe the year after. We'll see. What are you going to do someday when you stop working? Well, if the Lord wills, we hope to do this. We plan to do that. 
When will the church have its own building? Plurality of elders, 100 members, 300 members. The Lord wills whenever he chooses to add to our midst. This is the attitude that we are to have with heavenly wisdom. We understand that God is the sovereign of the universe. And as we saw last Sunday in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, in verse 1, man does not know whether it be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. We're all on the march toward death. (laughs) But for the one who knows Christ, the one whose life is hidden with Christ in God, we have every hope and every expectation. We can consult the Lord in our plans. We can make sure that we're acknowledging that. We can walk in heavenly wisdom. We can forsake earthly wisdom. And whatever comes, we can be prepared. And that's, that's the heart of, of our text this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed have the world in the palm of your hand. Not a molecule moves or does anything apart from your sovereign purposes. And we see that uh, and acknowledge that even now as we look at this text and look at your teaching in the, in the gospel records. We, we have to acknowledge that uh, everything we have, we have because of you. And we don't know what tomorrow may bring. Well, whatever it is, we pray that we would receive from your hand both good and evil, both uh, blessing and hardship, and that we would, like Job, not slander, not complain, not grumble, but bless your holy name. Lord, may that be true of us as a church. May that be true of us individually. And there's any heart here this morning who hasn't actually come to the true knowledge of Christ and, and is standing outside at the gate, as it were, and has not gone through that straight and narrow gate, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would know you, be able to trust in you, not just for salvation, but also, Lord, in all the details of life. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.